0: everyone. Welcome to the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice podcast for healthcare professionals, where we discuss topics relating to mental health and relevant eMental Health tools and programs that can assist practitioners in providing care. I'm Phoebe Holdenson-Kamira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal people, and I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, their elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 57, which was on the topic of setting you up for success with e-mental health. We had a fantastic group of panelists. Dr. Lasse B. Sander was a visiting fellow to the Black Dog Institute from Germany, where at the University of Freiburg, he is the head of medical sociology and also heads up the digital mental health research group. His area of interest is e-health in psychology for psychologists, psychotherapists, and GPs. Dr. Ruth Crowther, is a psychologist and clinical registrar with an interest in e-mental health and integrated mental health care. She works clinically in a private residential facility and also has her own private practice in Queensland. She's also a member of the MPRAC team at QUT. And Dr. Jan Orman, uh, you may recognise her voice, uh, is a Sydney-based GP uh, with a practice in private psychological medicine and is a GP educator for the Black Dog Institute. In this podcast, we discussed trends in the use of e-mental health resources. We talked about the current thinking about the role of e-mental health across stepped care and shared some key strategies to use when introducing patients to e-mental health options as part of their treatment plan. We also heard about developments in this space in Germany and considered what we can learn from their experience. So to start us off, Ruth, can you tell me about what e-mental health resources are available out there? sure can. Thanks, Phoebe. So...
1: Yeah, essentially, in a way to make this sort of a little bit more manageable, what we we kind of view the, the e-mental health programs along the lines of six these six primary categories. So that's not to say that there aren't some overlap between them. But primarily, we're looking at apps. So apps can be used for the mood tracking from a clinician perspective, They can be used for management of symptoms. So an example around that is is worry time for allocated space in the day to worry and also skills development. So it can be apps used, those that are used really for um, mindfulness and other skills such as those. So Another one is psychoeducation resources. So I think a lot of the people listening in this evening may well be across uh, the resource that is the Center for Clinical Innovation. So that's one that's commonly used in this space. But again, as I said, there's some overlap. So some of the online forums or the forums where you can access online support also provide psychoeducation resources. So third one, usually the online forums generally are moderated. Um, so that you know it's a safe space to go in and have a discussion about anything that's concerning either you, yourself, or a partner or family. Well, the next two are really focused around supported structured programs. So primarily they're all CPD. C- CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy. Uh, we're starting to see an emergence of different interventions, but primarily a lot of the literature is around CBT programs. So i mentioned mention that some of them are supported. So s- there's certain programs that have online therapist support. So an example around that might be Mood uh, MindSpot, and others that are self-directed. So the individual just works through self-paced. And their own time. An example of that will be this way up. Um, There's prescribed clinician supported programs. Again, this way up fits into that category as well, because as a clinician, we can really draw on digital mental health tools by prescribing particular programs that supports the people we're working with between sessions. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. And the final category that I think most people will be across and have probably used in their own practice is that of the the crisis service Mm -hmm. services. So really, um, there's app-based programs for that, um, where we've got sort of beyond now, Mm -hmm. but also there's some of the, you know, lifeline suicide callback line programs um, or services such as that. So as you can see, you know, there's a whole range of, of resources really coming from different perspectives.
2: So it's possibly even broader than um, that we'd realized uh, when you think about everything that's captured within um, this term. Now I guess one of the first questions that we always ask when we think about a fairly novel treatment option is does it actually work? Uh, and and some of some of us might have that question in the back of our, our minds tonight. Um, Larsa, you've done quite a lot of research into this and you've co-authored this paper. Uh, the meta-analysis uh, on the right-hand side here. Uh, what do we know about what the research says when it comes to mental health?
3: Yeah, so uh, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge that there's a lot of research that's going on in the last about 10 to 15 years, and we can really now look... Uh, back on a a huge evidence base, not only for depression, but for all mental um, conditions. And what we see is that these digital tools, they uh, can work pretty well, as good as and as effective as face-to-face treatments. We uh, know that I try to break this down really to a really practical um, nutshell. So one part that's really necessary is the guidance provided to the the people, especially when you talk about moderate and severe um, uh, cases, then it seems really, really necessary that we have some kind of human support um, along with these digital treatment formats always like these results that we see in, in, in science, um, you need to keep in mind that these head-to-head comparisons, they are very rare. So um, basically, that's because the um, preference is very important uh, mm. regarding the efficiency of these uh, kind of interventions. But that's more or less the same in medication, right? If you if you don't have a preference for taking uh, meds for depression, then they, they would just not use it. They would just not do it. So um, that, that's, that's more or less the same here. As well, um, like uh, speaking of guidance, in most recent uh, research, we see that, like, in in uh, th- threshold, um, symptom uh of depression and low and mild cases we see that these unguided interventions they seem to be comparable uh, effective um compared to guided interventions so that means that people with mild depression for example they might have a better like self-help skills still available to tr- to help themselves and that's that that really contributes to the scalability of this kind of interventions as well um, but speaking on the downsides, um, there are also like, some um, cases where the adherence rates and the effectiveness are pretty much lower than compared to the average. And that's especially in children adolescents. We might, might uh, dig into this uh, later on. Also, when we're just having like really app-based small programs, we see that interaction with apps is very much different to interaction with uh, bigger browser-based um, mm-hmm. programs. Um, so that that's it's really different. Where well, um, clinicians should take a take an eye on. Um, uh, I mentioned human human guidance. Um, one thing that you like, we we always see very shiny results from. Um, uh research with a small external validity so when we take those things into the pra- in the real practice and we see that the uh, effect sizes basically they they go a little bit down but that's more yeah. or less the same in in other uh, research fields um as well and we we see a like huge uh gap in more diverse target groups so that's also some challenge that we are facing right now in the in the research field
2: or say from what i understand uh the, there's more uh evidence around cbt online cbt for depression but that the findings for treatment of anxiety are similar is that right
3: yeah i mean uh, anxiety and depression is just the both conditions that are most studied but mm-hmm. like basically when we see like more studies coming up in other fields as well we see more or less the same results yeah. um, not really like theirs and it's always a bit uh, comparable to the results that we see in face to face treatment. For example, with addiction, we see not very good uh, results, mm-hmm. same as in face to face therapy and uh, some right. behavioral change uh, aspects as well, while we see comparable effect sizes in other conditions. Um,
2: Interesting. Yeah. So the same barriers to motivation that are there for face to face are potentially
3: similar yeah. yeah yeah that's a very good That's a very good question and we are all of course digging into that so what we can see basically is that uh the adherence rate predicts the effectiveness especially mm. in the early phases of the intervention so when you prescribe something you should really make sure in the beginning that they have a good a good takeoff so to say mm. um so that's that's really important um and then um in 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 this case it's like uh, adherence rates really um, helps uh, for effective, uh, effectiveness. Um, it, like what you can contribute is basically uh, increase the human support and really help those patients to um, manage these resources. Also, like try to understand why they don't interact with it. Um, especially in children, adolescents. So what we can see is that they have a huge pickup for these kind of interventions, but then they, they just they would just uh, drop it drop if they, if they yeah. don't like it and pr- pretty um, fast. While we see in adults, uh, and especially also in older people, that they more interact and they feel more a bit yeah related to this program and they really want to do it. Then while it's, it's just a different type of behavior and interaction, also with technology in general, I think.
2: I find it actually quite helpful when I conceptualise the use of e-mental health resources to think about stepped care. Now, we're all familiar with the idea of stepped care. We just might not be calling it that. Um, So if you're in the general practice setting and somebody comes in with a cough, I guess the first thing you're wanting to assess is do we think it's just a upper respiratory tract infection, do we think they might have influenza, or do they have a serious bacterial pneumonia and need to go to hospital? So we're sort of familiar with that idea of matching the severity of the illness to the intensity of the treatment. It's no different with mental health. So that's a big part of what we're trying to do is, is make a good assessment, do a, take a history, do a mental state examination, come up with a formulation, have a sense of how unwell this person is, and then uh, match the appropriate resources for that person. But I can see Jan that, that self help, uh, comes up at almost every step. What's your view on
4: that? I absolutely think having people engage with self-help activities in mental health care is really, really important. We're aiming at improving their sense of self-efficacy and we're aiming at them not needing us anymore. Many of them have got chronic lifelong problems and wouldn't it be great if we could get them to the point where they were looking after themselves rather than needing other people to help them. So I definitely think that self-help fits on every rung of the ladder and that online resources are a great way of supporting people in their self-help activities.
2: Mm, And probably building their sense of self-efficacy as well. Absolutely. Mm, mm we've sort of established that there's a role that e-mental health tools and resources could play at every sort of step of that stepped care model. Ruth, could you just talk us through um the different ways that those tools can actually be used within the consultation.
1: So some of the ways in which we can integrate e-mental health into clinical practice. So initially as a treatment aid, so mentioned before some of the resources around CCI, other organizations, you can really use a lot of resources as psychoeducation. So drawing on worksheets or information sheets, or even just flicking through various sort of educational apps can really help with that. Also really useful for skills teaching and using it as a way to bolster the work that you're going to do between the sessions. So that's very much as it says there, it's really helping you to deliver your treatment within session where I tend to use it probably the bulk of the time is helping people between sessions Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so this is that sort of adjunctive combined almost like blended care kind of model it's face-to-face and um, online so examples of how I might do that or how people can do that is you know using mood monitoring so there's plenty of apps and programs that you can do that with um, again, crisis support we know has a really key role in terms of providing support and that um, immediate contact for help when needed between sessions. I might just add here as well what I'll often do because the people I work with often, well, as most people are, are quite complex. So, what we might focus on in session is one thing, but then we'll draw on some of these other tools. Between Mm -hmm. sessions to maybe focus on, I don't know, maybe alcohol misuse or some CBT skills whilst we're exploring something else in session. So I think that's a really valuable way in which you can use and explore how e-mental health fits within your clinical practice. Mm. And the final one is: well, it's really two, it's treatment before and after. So People who are on waiting lists, we know that there's been really extensive waiting lists to see people for mental health support. So it can be used as a way to kind of empower people to feel like they're doing something, but also provide them with some skills before they actually reach the the clinician or practitioner Mm -hmm. and start doing Mm -hmm. some work. Um, Also, after the session's finish, you know, often I will sign somebody up for a program if I'm going to continue to see them privately, then often I'll do some, uh, use something such as this way up whereby I can see how they're progressing and that gives us a touch point. Um, but I think an important one to mention there, particularly because I do a lot of work in the alcohol misuse spaces, the use of apps as a sort of relapse prevention because it provides wow. also those yeah. online forums where people can go and talk about how they're going and chat about. People talk about how many streaks they've got. You know, it's a whole different space now in alcohol misuse. So I I tend to use a lot of programs in that relapse prevention area as well.
2: So, yeah, there's there's lots of ways that we can conceptualise, but it seems to me like almost everything that you've described involves ongoing engagement with the clinician. When e-mental health first became a thing, a lot of people were quite concerned about it saying, oh, well, nothing can ever replace face-to-face therapy. And we all agree on that. Nobody's denying that. Uh And so I think what we're seeing more and more is that blended model
3: Yes, but I would like emphasize also the preventive effect of these unguided interventions. So yeah. what we can see is that um, in like, and we, we've replicated in many different uh, conditions is that we can really prevent almost half of the cases uh, with a mental illness, if they, at an early stage of the with sub threshold um, uh, symptoms, engage in some kind of cell uh, help digital tool. So that, that would really Lower the pressure on our systems, Um, and I think then for these cases we wouldn't need face to face therapy anymore. So that's that's really something where we can um, yeah help on a global scale with this scalability. Yeah,
4: Mm. it's probably worth remembering that the first big Australian program that was released in two thousand and one, that's Mood Gym, was actually developed to build resilience Mm -hmm. in young people. It Mm -hmm. was a, a a mental health. Prevention program or a mental illness prevention program, and it it has been extremely useful in that that level of care down that that less severe end of care. But it's actually been shown to be helpful in other areas as well. So, you know mm. that that was the initial idea to help prevent mental health problems.
2: Alrighty, so we've talked a lot about what's available and what's happening in Australia, um, but. We've there's a lot to learn from Lasse's experience in Germany. Um Lasse, can you talk to us about um what, what the German model of e-mental health is?
3: Uh, yeah, sure. Um So basically what we uh, faced in Germany was that we were very far behind compared to other countries, especially like uh, uh, countries like Australia or Canada, um, Sweden. They were pretty much ahead when it came to digitalization of uh, the healthcare system. And uh, just a few years ago, the uh, government invented um, the so-called DIGAS, which is just German for digital health interventions. Um, And uh, so this is a program where the developers can bring their uh, digital tools to uh, a system which is controlled and licensed by the German federal uh, government. Um, And uh, every clinician um, and uh, psychotherapist is able to pre-prescribe all these uh, digital tools then via this system, and they then get uh, fully covered by the general insurance. Um, So this really uh, was a big step forward in digitalization. Um, So what we now can see is that we have about around 50 apps available. And very interestingly, because this is like for all different conditions, um, we see that 50% um, are in relation to mental uh, or behavioral health aspects. So that's that's really our field that is here, the, the very dominant and, uh, we've got, um, programs and tools available for, uh, all major diagnoses, for depression, anxiety, eating disorders and all, uh, everything that you can think of and, and all that's not in there all, already will, will come up in the next couple of, uh, months and years. Um, and what we. Uh, C is the preferred care scenario is uh, blended care so that uh, people in private practice for example can integrate these digital tools into their routine uh, system also what uh, we can see in the practice is that uh, pretty ma- like uh, most of the those um, apps that are out there right now or programs and tools are out there right now they are prescribed for people on wait lists so when they first see mm-hmm. somebody and then they're they don't get a treatment seat right right away they would then work for themselves through a program and some kind of what you might call a step up um, intervention in here um, and the second uh, then the third one is that um, we use these kind of tools for long term monitoring and relapse prevention in our patients as well
2: What's been the experience so far? What have been the challenges for you guys?
3: Um, yeah uh, like for the uh, companies that that basically want to sell their programs, they see a big challenge because uh, of the low prescription rates of their um, tools. So they they were used to have a direct to consumer um, uh, selling program mm. uh, via the app stores, for example. So they, they they would reach a lot of people directly. While now uh, they always have to go through a practitioner, who then would prescribe their um, digital tools to the patient. And this really uh, was a is disappointing, I think, for the companies. Um, uh, also, we see in the practitioners a uh, pretty much a lack of awareness of these new uh, things that come up. So we we need uh, more yeah, initiatives like yours to really make people aware of these progress and how to use them. Um, if them, if these clinicians are aware, some of them are still very unmotivated to um, their own behavior change. So what they, because this is really what is necessary that you uh, change your own routines when uh treating patients and dealing with them by integrating this new kind of um yeah tools to your toolbox uh so to say um and uh Like, as you all know, now you're sitting here in this webinar and this is uh, timely for you and cost and thereby it's costly for you. Um, And there's like we don't have any financial compensation for that. So they really they don't get any incentives um, to engage with these digital tools. also, what I hear very often from psychotherapists when I give workshops in Germany is that they feel that some of these programs, they would rather streamline their, their psychotherapeutic approaches. And what I mean by that is that usually what we do in our um, regular care is that we um, uh, develop individual treatment models for mm-hmm. every single patient. Entireful. And these digital tools, um, they they. they although they're called smart, they don't, they aren't really smart. Very, right? mm-hmm. a lot of them, they're just uh, like some kind of one size fits all approach. And is is, not right. This might be right for the majority, but not for the individual patient. Uh, and the last thing that I'd like to mention, I think there, is, uh, there are better resources available in Australia, is that the necessity of prescription that really doesn't solve the stigma pro- uh, problem, right? So if the people, especially in my field of suicide prevention, still have to come up to, to get uh, access to these kind of tools, um, then they would just not show up. Uh, at the end, and is this a problem with stigma still?
2: In Germany, it's quite uh, defined uh, what um, is available and what can be trusted. I think in Australia it can feel overwhelming. Um, we know that there's hundreds of thousands of apps, and when we're talking about apps, that's used as a catch-all phrase, um, which includes um, desktop-based uh, programs and websites and things like that. But essentially, there's lots and lots of apps out there. How do we navigate that, Ruth? I mean, how do we know what to trust and what to be recommending to our patients? Yeah, that's a
1: really good question. And, you know, if I putting my MPRAC hat on, it's something that we get, get asked an awful lot. So what, look, what do we know? We know that barely over 3% of those that are available on the App Store actually have... Any evidence base underlying their effectiveness. So there's no strong evidence base or export or very limited expert input for many of the apps that are available. Some of them will make comments. So I'm sure everybody's familiar with apps. When you go into it, you can see who the developers are. You get a sense of where your data gets held and if there's (laughs) evidence underlying it. Some of them will say that they have expert input into the development. So it's probably almost a third of that 10,000 pretty much that are available, or were available at the time of this study, actually stated they'd had expert input. Another probably a fifth, 20 percent were affiliated with a government body or maybe an academic institution or an organization such as, I don't know, say Reach out or Black Dog Institute. So something that's reputable. And I guess that's the key part. If we're looking at what's reasonable for us to recommend, have a look at that information. You know, get a sense of of who's been involved in the the setup or the development or the implementation of it. If you don't have time to do that, and most of us don't, that's the you know, often people are like, "Well, I just want someone else to do this for me." The work has already been done. So, some of the really nice key browser based portals that you can go to, if you're trying to find something that you know you can trust, I would really suggest going to any. Of these specific ones around, let's say we've got Head to Health, it's the federal government-funded um, Australian Digital Mental Health Gateway, MPRAC, Mental Health in Practice, also have a resource guide. There's Wellmob, who is a again a web-based search engine for resources that you can trust that are again primarily evidence-based, working within Indigenous communities with our First Nation people. And other ones are. Organizations like Reach Out has a, a number of tools and apps that we can download and use from there. Other ones, Digital Health Guide is one that's sort of emerged more recently and is used a lot within primary health networks. I think GP, some GPs tap into that. Uh, Mind Apps and the One Mind Cyber Guide. So they're based overseas, but you know, there's also a lot of apps and programs that that we have available to us that aren't necessarily Australian that we know are really effective. So my my answer to that is keep it simple, you know, use the resources that have been created to enable this to be as easy as possible for you.
2: What does the research actually tell us about uh, what sort of patients um, stand to gain the most from being recommended in mental health? So the research
1: Essentially, if we if we look at it sort of big picture, it it tells us to not make assumptions about whether or not people will be appropriate or not for uh, e mental health tools or digital mental health tools. So, I guess my my key point here really comes back to it depends how you set it up initially. So. It's not necessarily about the demographics, although we know that people who have a lot of chaos in their lives are probably less likely to engage. The literature certainly shows that.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's very true, isn't it? Setting yourself up for success, I think that that's the uh, title of this webinar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Jan, you've talked a fair bit about being confident in the recommendations that we make. I mean, what what
4: does that really mean? Well, you can't be confident unless you've had a little bit of a look at the research and you know that the research says these things work. They they work for anxiety. They work for depression. They work to help build resilience. And you can take my word for that or you can go and have a look at the research yourself. Many of the websites have a page dedicated to the research and the MPRAC um, Website also has uh, a whole lot of research papers on it available on it that you can have a look at. But once you're feeling confident about it working, you need to speak mm. to people with some confidence—the the confidence that they have they have the literacy skills and the 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 um, tech skills to be able to do it because it really is easy. And the confidence that if you get someone to help you with either the tech or the literacy bit, then We know that the efficacy of the programs does not diminish if you've got someone helping you. And in fact, you you may be helping them as well. So, I think it's really important to not just talk about it, but also to show people the things that you're recommending, to show them what this program or this resource looks like on your screen and, even better, on their smartphone so that they go away with a history, the, the URL in the history of their search on their smartphone.
2: We've sort of touched on this already, but there are a few um, other considerations around privacy. There are Australian standards, um, and so you can see whether any particular digital resource um, adheres to those standards. Um, check security in the About section. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about Rachel now, um, in, in the context of thinking about e-mental health resources. Uh, Rachel's a 54 year old high school teacher, um, who's been married to her husband of 22 years, Bernie. She's got three teenagers at home. Uh, so you can imagine that things are pretty busy for her. Um, she comes in telling you that things have really been pretty hard for the last two years and getting worse in relation to, um, having no motivation, low mood, uh, and then she, she starts to tell you about um, the death of her father two years ago and then the, her mother who died only three months ago who she was caring for leading up to her death. And as she talks about this, she begins to cry. She's also been having difficulty coping with her stresses, particularly the stress around her U12 daughter who's studying for the HSC and finding that very difficult. She's been having trouble getting to sleep, but also waking up throughout the night. And she's been using alcohol to unwind most nights. So when we think about Rachel, there's a lot there, isn't there? What what sticks out to you, Ruth?
1: My goodness, as you say, there's there's a lot, there's a lot of complexity, but that's also not unusual in the people we work with. So, you know, in terms of the various different presenting concerns, you know, we would Obviously, we'd start with some sort of formulation around what she's presenting. And initially, if we're thinking about using a mental health tools, it's certainly going to take a few sessions to really collect a, enough of a history to really figure out what what the primary presentation is. You know, if we're looking at some of the presenting concerns are around depression or grief, supporting daughter, um, all of those that you know those that you listed in the description. Yes, you know the you would say the case is appropriate for use of e-mental health tools from a diagnostic perspective. We know that there are tools available across all of those. Yeah, in line with that, potentially, yes, but um, it's going to take you a couple of sessions to work out. And um, and I guess that's part of the, the thing is to really, again, it comes back to the setup and really being considered um, when looking at, at what, what you can use here.
4: But yeah, mm. I think
1: she's appropriate for use of e mental health tools.
4: I think the important thing with someone like Rach is that you have in the back of your mind the possibility all the time that there may be something in the digital world that'll help her. You don't necessarily have to talk about it then and there. But if it's just if your knowledge is such that these things are just sitting in the back of your mind and you choose an appropriate moment to talk about it, then that's that's blended care.
2: Mm, mm. What are your thoughts, Marseille?
3: Yeah, I I think so too and maybe I can add that um it it's pretty much not about the um diagnostics or the symptoms that she presents but rather if she's like familiar with this kind of if, if she if she really f- Thinks that this is a tool that can help her that she would engage with digital tools for mental health and for, for which aspects? So maybe, maybe she says here yeah, with with this sleep program I can go along, but but with all these grief things that I'm dealing with, maybe then I really want to talk to a real person, and that's that's totally fine. And you can you can really match also like her preferences for different uh, aspects of her um, the symptom pressure to digi- to different ways of interacting with her i think that's that's very important
1: um just in relation to that so even in the context of you know you, you identified there was a daughter with anxiety so whilst yes. we're not as per se using a digital tool there what i might do is download let's say the high school students fact sheet off the mprac site and give her that to give to the daughter right. so there's also that sort of passing on of information that mm. i think is is worth having in the back of your mind as well
2: Mm, just another tool in your toolkit. What I'm hearing from all three of you, though, really is that it's a very individualised approach. It's something that you sort of navigate and negotiate with the patient depending on what their preferences are, what their agenda is, uh, which, you know, makes a lot of sense because that's what we do with everything, you know, with talking to patients about seeing a psychologist or or starting a medication or doing behavioural activation. So I think, but I think, you know, if we were to say, yes, I've diagnosed you with these conditions and these are all the e-mental health tools that I want you to start using. You can imagine that Rachel may feel quite um, sort of palmed off by that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think regardless of what you talk to, what we talk to Rachel about on this particular um, appointment uh, and whether we uh, offer some tools or not, it would seem to me that um, follow-up's very important. What are your thoughts on that, Jen?
4: Well, I think that if you're not following up a patient, you're not doing your job properly. Is that a bit harsh, Phoebe, do you think? No. Uh, you know, you've got to treat a, a referral to an online program in much the same way as you treat um, a uh, prescription of an antidepressant medication, for example. You do it in the best and most persuasive way you can, and then you make an appointment before they leave you for the follow-up. And if you if you know they've got the appointment, you can certainly then follow it up if they don't turn up. And I think it's good to make it clear to the patient that what you're following them up about is the program that you've recommended and whether or not it's the way to go. So it, it's clear in their minds that that's what you're doing. Mm. Um, of course, there's more to it than that. You're following them up to see whether they need some kind of more radical intervention, um, but but certainly that first follow-up at Two weeks maximum, followed by some more follow up a bit later on to see how they're going, I think it's very important when you're recommending digital treatment programs.
2: Yeah, it's a very hands on approach, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so we know that, you know, we've all come across pitfalls uh, in recommending digital tools uh, in practice. Um, we may not have been able to imbibe the same degree of confidence in the patient themselves, and they might need a bit more help um, uh, starting to use. Um, the resource you, you might get them back for that review and then they say no I haven't used it haven't downloaded it and so we've got to sort of go back to the drawing board a little bit and understand what those barriers were uh, and, and, and perhaps even rehearse um, what it would look like you know we're going to do you know five minutes each day or is there a particular uh, place that you think
0: would be suitable. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast on how to set you and your patients up for success with e-mental Health. A big thank you to Lasse, Ruth and Jan for sharing your experience and expertise with us. All the resources and services that we've discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute website in the Health Professional Resource and Education Hub under the tile webinar 57. Thanks so much for listening today. Until next time, bye.